Well, today we are going to be talking about Harim, and um, that is one of the Jewish festivals, or the Lord's, I'll call this a Jewish festival rather than a Lord's festival, because this is not one of those that is prescribed by God or commanded by God in order to be celebrated. So you might want to have your Bibles opened up to the book of Esther, that's where we're going to be uh, staying for most of the day, so you can uh, keep it Open to that book and keep your thumb there. Let's start with prayer, and uh, we'll see what Esther has to say for us here today. Heavenly Father, we just are grateful for this time as always. We ask that you would just speak to us clearly. You tell us that your word is powerful. It is a living word, sharper than a double-edged sword, sharp enough to penetrate between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Lord, we know that you are that word, the word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we pray now that you would dwell in us and among us, and that that word would speak to us, that as we leave here today, that we would not go away the same as we are now, but that we would be changed as we are drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when Brett asked me to speak on Purim, I thought, Purim, that's an interesting one to talk about because of the fact that, as I said, it is not one of the prescribed um, festivals that's there. But there is a, a rich history in Purim, and it is ultimately the very focus of the book of Esther. Now, I love the book of Esther. It's a short book. Not That's why I don't like it, or I love it. But I love it because there is a message that is of God's faithfulness that is so powerful as you look here. But I want to give you some history of what's going on in the book of Esther, because Esther is uh, really during the Persian reign which is about 483 B.C. that this is taking place. The other interesting thing is in the book of Esther, did you know the word God is not mentioned anywhere? God is not even mentioned in there, specifically directly. However, God is in there in other ways. Um, Obviously, you will see God working in in the casting of lots. He's working in appointing Esther. His divine hand is hidden but it's there. Much like in our lives, we often see that God's hand, you may not hear him audibly, you may not see his, his uh, form, but you know that God is working in your life. And I think that's one of the things I like about Esther is the fact that I can relate. I know that God is working in my life, and I may not see all these miracles and dreams and visions all the time, but we do see that he's there. The background is the Jews are in what used to be Babylon. Remember, they lived in the promised land of Israel. God brought them in there, but because they were disobedient, God had to bring uh, a discipline to them. And the Assyrians took ten of the tribes and scattered them throughout the Assyrian Empire. But the Babylonians came and they took the Jews back to Babylon, where they remained for 70 years. But at the end of those 70 years, we see that the Medes and the Persians came and they conquered this world leader of Babylon. And we had kings like Darius and Cyrus and all those. Well, these are the kings that allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. It was a, a huge moment. They went back to, to build the walls of Jerusalem, to build the temple of Jerusalem. So the question that we have to ask is, why are these Jews here in Persia long after they have already had permission to go back to Jerusalem? What are they doing here? 
I'm of the opinion the book of Esther should not have been in the Bible. It shouldn't have been there had the Jews been open to God's call. You see, Jerusalem is home. God says, I gave you this land. They got exiled. And now he says, now I'm letting you go back to the land. And they said, you know what? We kind of like it in the world. They remained in physical Babylon, even though it was ruled by the Medes and the Persians. They remained there. And God had said, come out of her, my people. But they remain there. And so I, I really think that had they been obedient and had they taken that opportunity, the blessing God had given them, the book of Esther would have never been in the Bible. We'd have never seen it. And so I think that that's something that we need to consider. Here in Jeremiah 29, we give some indication as far as why these Jews never returned. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry. Have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Do not decrease. They obeyed that command. You see, God said, when I send you into exile, I want you to live life as normal. I'm still God, but I'm going to give the land the Sabbath rest that they deserve, that you did not give them. And so they did. They, they became well acquainted with the land. Seventy years, I mean, you think of 70 years, their children grew up. Most of their children didn't know anything but this. They didn't even know Jerusalem. And so as a result, what history shows is that only about 10%, less than 10% really, of the Jews went back to Jerusalem when they did. And I think that this had some serious ramifications later on, especially when the Messiah came. You see, I think Jesus wanted to go back because Jesus knew that he was going to return there as their Messiah. But so few went back when he came, so few recognized him. So some very serious ramifications. It kept them from seeing the Messiah. But they were so comfortable in Babylon, I will call it, even though it's ruled by the Persians. They were so comfortable... They didn't want to seek God's presence. They didn't want to go where God had prepared a path for them to go. And I think we can relate to that in our own lives in many cases. We'll come back to some of that. But I want you to also understand another reason that the book of Esther should have never been in the Bible. It's all because of disobedience. You recall here in Deuteronomy when the Israelites are going into the promised land. God comes to Moses and he says to them, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gave you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. You see, these Amalekites were an ungodly nation. And at first... When they were in Egypt and they were wandering around, God says, you know, the sins of these people have not yet reached its full measure. He was being merciful and gracious to these people, giving them an opportunity to repent. But then God says, now when you go in there, he says, their sin has reached its full measure, and I don't want you to leave any of them alive. Now, many people think, well, well, what kind of loving God is that that's going to go in and just kill all these Amalekites? Well, the bottom line is, it's a just God. You see, there is a time when God is going to return and he's going to do the same thing again. 
if we have not repented of our sins and we don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, He's sending the Word of God to destroy. But He's being patient with us today. But He says, you're to wipe out the Amalekites. Later on, we see Saul was disobedient. They did not wipe out the Amalekites, so they're still there when King Saul is there. Saul becomes king, and Samuel says, you're supposed to go. God even told Samuel to tell Saul, you go and wipe out the Amalekites. He goes to battle, and this is what he says. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites, and I brought back Agag, their king. Now, if he's bringing back a king, he didn't completely destroy them. Samuel comes up and says, what did you do? Why do I hear these sheep bleeding in my ears? And Saul makes up this excuse. He says, well, uh, we brought the the best ones to sacrifice to God. He says, that's not what God said. God said, totally destroy them. So what we see from the Bible is that not only did Saul not kill all the Amalekites, he must have been talking here just about maybe a city of the Amalekites, But Agag, Samuel ended up killing, but Agag had descendants because Haman, a very prime satanic figure of the book of Esther, is from the Agagites, from Agag. Here, the king that is primarily talked about here as we look in Esther now, chapter 1, verse 3, If you have the NIV version, it might say Xerxes. That is not a good translation. Xerxes was a historical criticism. They thought, well, that must be the king, so they put it in there. But it actually says King Ahasuerus. That's who we're talking about. Xerxes is really not the guy. But King Ahasuerus here, it says, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles. Now, King Ahasuerus, who is this guy? Cyrus was the father of Darius, of the Medes and the Persians. And Darius is the father of Ahasuerus. So that gives you a little time frame as far as where we're at. Well, anyway, the story, as you can read in Esther, goes, is Ahasuerus is having this big banquet. He's having this big celebration. And he's invited all these people from all the provinces to come. And after uh, many days of drinking, which brings no good decisions, as we see a number of times through the book of Esther... He says, you know, I want to parade my wife before these men. And so he he basically has the servants go get Vashti, the queen, to come and dance before these people. Now, we don't know what kind of dancing this was. All we know is that Queen Vashti says, no, I'm not going to do that. So she refuses the king. Well, as a result, what ends up happening is the king gets very upset. And the nobles meet with them, and the nobles say, listen, we can't have this, because if the women hear about this in the, in the city, they're going to say, well, Queen Vashti doesn't have to listen to her husband. Why should we listen to ours? And so they had to set an example. So in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says, later when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Those nobles had said, you know what? She has to go. And so they dethroned the queen and basically excommunicated her from the kingdom. And so this made the the king very sad as he began to cool down a bit. Now it says, the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king. 
and he followed it. So they began to seek after a new queen. You see, I think God's hand, his fingerprints are already all over this. God is orchestrating this because now we know, as the book of Esther is titled, it's named after this woman, this young virgin, who a Jew named Mordecai was bringing up. It was actually her uncle was Mordecai. Now Esther, her name means conceal or hidden because the Hebrew word, uh, it means that. Now, what's interesting about that is Esther was concealed or hidden. She must not have been living out the Jewish traditions. She had probably become well acquainted to the Persian ways because nobody knew that she was a Jew. She, she wasn't probably doing the festivals and things like that openly because nobody knew. It says here in chapter 2, verse 15, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth in the 7th year of his reign. Now, remember what we just saw here earlier? That it was in the 3rd year of his reign that he's having this party. And now it's in the 7th year of his reign that Esther is being brought forth. So that gives you, it has been 4 years that have been passed here in the first 2 chapters of Esther. Well, in chapter 3, it says Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes or Ahasuerus. You see, Haman became a noble. He was one of the leaders underneath Ahasuerus. And we see that in the 12th year of the king, which would be five years after Esther has been appointed queen, Ahasuerus here, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pur, that is the lot. See, this is where we're going to get the festival called Purim. It means lots. That em at the end of pur is just makes it plural. So this is casting of lots. Well, anyway, they selected a day and a month that this Haman, who hated the Jews, would be able to get rid of the Jews. He hated the Jews. And so he... For whatever reason, some morning he wakes up and he decides, you know what, I am going to get rid of these guys. Now, there's going to be other reasons that's going to cause him to hate them even more. But for now, he just casts lots for a certain day and a certain time. Now, the interesting thing is the Bible says this, Proverbs 16, 33, I think 18, 18 as well, that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Again, I think we're seeing the fingerprints of God here. The day that was you know, determined by Lot, I believe, was set aside by God for a specific reason. This isn't an accident that these days are coming up. Well, later on, we're going to see that Mordecai, this uncle of Esther, who is a Jew, practices the Judaic ways, will not bow down before Haman as he rides before, you know, through the streets. Because the Bible says you don't bow down. Just like we saw in Daniel, they refused to bow down to this image, this idol. Mordecai is not about to bow down before a man. And Mordecai refuses. And those of you who went to Israel, you can see that stubborn way. You can imagine <laughs> that they would never bow down to a, a man. And this makes uh, Haman even more upset. Because Haman is a very proud man and he demands that respect. But Mordecai won't give it to him. In chapter 3, verse 12, it says that on the 13th day of the first month, 
Now, this is interesting because the first month is the month of Nisan, our April, basically. Now, the 13th day of Nisan is the day before Passover begins. So you can imagine that these people in the home right now, they're, they're getting all excited. In every Jewish home, they're preparing the lamb. They're getting ready to have a, a big festival, a party, ultimately. Family is going to be invited over. It's a time of joy and excitement to remember God's deliverance out of Egypt. And now they're trying to remember God's deliverance. And on this very day, look what happens. It says that the edict that Haman had cast lots about what day to, to actually like carry it out is written on this day and sent out to all the provinces the day before Passover. And what the, it says here, as you can see in the bottom there, it is the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate on a single day and to plunder their goods. So you can imagine, these guys are all excited and then their joy is just slammed down to the ground immediately. Now they find out that we're supposed to be destroyed, killed, annihilated. Now the interesting thing here, the word annihilate, give you a little indication as far as where this is coming from. Annihilate in Hebrew is a bad, A-B-A-D. Now that ought to ring a bell here for you. Maybe it might sound familiar to you because here in Revelation chapter 9, verse 11, it says, they had as a king over them the angel of the abyss whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. The very goal or essence of who Satan is, is the annihilator, the destroyer. And so I don't think, again, that Haman is just, I mean, he is a human flesh person, but I think that it is the power of Satan working through him. Haman is a symbol of Satan, the devil. And the devil hates the Jews. He wants to kill the Jew. He has from the very beginning. Remember in Genesis? The, the curse. It even says that he was going to go after them. He goes after the Jew because he knows that the Messiah is going to come through them. He knows the gospel will go first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So he wants to go to the very root. The very root of where the covenant was promised. John 10.10 even says the thief comes only to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. What was Haman going to do? Plunder, take their goods, kill, destroy. It's the same thing. So Satan and Haman have the same purpose, the same goal in mind here. Well, it's on this 13th day of the month then that Mordecai will come to his niece, Esther, and he explains everything that is about to take place. It says here in chapter 4, verse 3, In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth ashes. Now here's the question. Why are they getting in sackcloth and ashes? What does that speak of? Repentance. You see, this wasn't, oh, Lord, we've been so righteous. I mean, I don't understand why this is happening to us. Please help us. This is, we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. We need to get in sackcloth and ashes. We need to repent. I don't know for sure, but I wonder if many of them weren't thinking we should, have been, we should be in Jerusalem. If we would have listened and gone back to Jerusalem, we wouldn't be in this situation right now. I don't know. But it goes on. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. See, Mordecai even knew, even if he dies, you know, those Jews are still back in Jerusalem. But, you see, God will deliver us because He has made a promise. He has made a covenant with us. We know God's history. And anybody who comes up against us will lose. We'll talk more about that later. But the bottom line is, is that's faith right there. It's kind of like what, you know, in Daniel, we see Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They go before the Lord and they say, you know what, you can throw us into this fire, but even if we are burned up, we want you to know something. Our God is alive. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. But we will not bow down before you. And that's ultimately what Mordecai says. Even if we die, I want you to know our God is still on his throne. And he will bring deliverance for the Jew. You know what? I think there's a lot of people today, maybe some of you sitting out here, who think, you know what? God will not bring deliverance for the Jew today. And I'm here to tell you this morning that. Yes, God will bring deliverance for the Jew. You you know, people think God has rejected the Jew. No, He hasn't. He has used them for your benefit. He says that if their rejection is reconciliation for the world, how much more will their acceptance be but life from the dead? You see, we we, we should be excited for the acceptance of the Jew because you know what that means. Life from the dead, the resurrection, will take place. Not until the Jew gets to see the Messiah will we experience the resurrection. Will the Lord return? We should be praying for the Jew to see this. We should have the faith of Mordecai. Even if these Jews are unfaithful to God, God will be faithful to them and His promises to them. I think that they may have had, as Mordecai was saying this, Joel in mind. Joel chapter 2. Look what it says. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts with fasting, weeping, and mourning. That's exactly what they, he says. You know, we're going to feast, we're going to weep, we're going to mourn. And he goes on to say, who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave a blessing. And that's what Mordecai said. Who knows that God hasn't put you here for that purpose, he tells Esther. In chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, then, we see Esther's response. Esther says, all right, we're going to go. I want you all to you go to all the Jews to go and fast for the next three days. We're going to weep. We're going to repent. We're going to mourn for three days. Now, keep in mind, it was on the 13th of the month that this edict was given, right? So if they're going to fast for three days, we're going to have three days later. That'll put us at April 16th. A couple of days past Passover. So on the third day, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, as it begins here, on the third day, April 16th, Esther put her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. Verse 4 says, If it pleases the king, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared. So, On that day, it says, today come to that banquet. April 16th is going to be the first night of that banquet. You may say, why is that important? You'll understand here in a moment. Okay. Now, you know the story here that she was putting her very life in danger because you couldn't enter into the presence 
of a Mede or a Persian king without being summoned. If you did, you would be dead. They'd kill you. It was one way to protect the king. But if you did come before the king, it was the king's job then to decide, hey, if I don't extend my gold scepter to you, then, you know, the, the people in there knew to kill the, peop- the, the other person that had entered. But King Ahasuerus extends the gold scepter to Esther. King had not seen Esther for 30 days. She had not been summoned for 30 days, the scriptures tell us. And so she was putting her very life in line here, acting in faith. Haman is a very proud person. And we see that on this very day, the same day that this is happening, that Esther is saying, hey, I want to invite you to a banquet. He goes home then, and he starts bragging to his wife and his friends. And he has a party. Again, nothing good comes from these parties. And Haman boasted to them about his wealth, his many sons, all the ways that the king had honored him, how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And he said, that's not all. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. I must be pretty special. Now, God may have had some other reasons for this, as we'll see in a minute. But he goes on. In verse 13, it says, But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. So his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Why don't you have some gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning which would be the 17th tomorrow morning, to hang Mordecai on it. Isn't it something how we can just be on cloud nine? We can have everything. God has blessed us with so many things, and all it takes is one little thing for us to think, oh, none of this gives me any satisfaction unless I can have this. Can you relate to Haman in that way? The pride and the selfishness that creeps into our lives? That's Satan at work. Not only in Haman's life, but in our own. Well, the very night that this is happening, I'm sure that Haman goes to bed and he's all excited because tomorrow I'm going to kill my arch nemesis. He's going to be dead. But while he's going to bed all excited, the king, for whatever reason, God probably, can't sleep. But in the morning, the king says in verse 4, Who is in the court? Haman is coming in to say, hey, I would like to kill Mordecai. He had some gallows built. But when he couldn't sleep, the king had some, uh, his officials bring the scroll. He says, you know what, I can't sleep. Read to me. Go get the scrolls. So he gets the scrolls out, and they start reading things that had happened in his kingdom. And one of the things that was read was about Mordecai one time earlier, as the scriptures tell us in Esther. He was sitting in the gate, and he heard a couple of the king's officials talking about an assassination plot to kill King Ahasuerus. So Mordecai went and told Esther. Esther goes and tells the king and gives Mordecai the credit for it. But nothing had been done to reward or acknowledge that Mordecai had saved the king. And so he hears this being read in the annals, and and he thinks, well, what was done for this man? And they said, nothing. So just then, Haman, as, as... as he's thinking about this, it's fresh in his mind. Haman walks in, and before Haman can open his mouth to say, hey, I've got a request, King Ahasuerus says, hey, I've got a question for you. Who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the court to the palace, speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows that he had erected for him, and he says, what should be done for a man that the king desires to honor? 
Now, Haman is a pride man, proud man. He thinks, well, who else could the king want to honor but me? I mean, I'm the only one that Esther's invited. I'm the one that is, I've got the king's signet ring. Who else could he want to honor? So what does he do? He says, you know what? I think the best thing that you could do is if you would put the man that you would like to honor on a horse that the king only has ridden and put the king's royal robes on him and go lead, have somebody lead him through the street singing, this is what is done to the man that the king would like to honor. Now, this is a huge request. I'll get to that in a moment. But I want you to understand that the king is reading a scroll because he can't sleep. And it is through this scroll that God is going to bring not only judgment, but deliverance as well. You know, the Bible talks about our king who will read a scroll someday. When Satan is about to come into the courts and say, oh, I'm going to wipe out these Christians, I want to kill every single one of them. He's going to go after the saints of God, it says in Revelation. But you know what happens? God's up there in heaven and he's not sleeping. And he's going to take out a scroll. It says here in chapter 5, verse 7, He, Jesus, he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, which I believe is God. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. You see, only Jesus is allowed to open up this scroll. And then it goes on. In chapter 10, it says that he was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hands. And he planted his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And he begins to open that scroll up then. It lay open in his hand. And the reason it lay open is because he has already pronounced judgments that are on that scroll that were judgments upon Satan's kingdom, protection for his saints, all because of a scroll being read. This roar of a lion, I'm going to share a little personal story with you from Israel that I just uh, learned since we got back that was really neat. When we went to um, Israel, we went to the Golan Heights. And the Golan Heights is a, where many battles have taken place in 1973, Yom Kippur War. And it, I don't have time to get into all the details, but it was a miraculous battle. The Israelis fought off with five tanks, 200 Assyrian tanks. Okay? The, the odds were of biblical proportions. And our guide, Nahum, said, to this day they do not know why, but they came so far and they stopped. The tanks stopped. They, we, we don't know why to this day, Nahum said. Well, one of the people that was on our tour went back to Omaha area, and he was telling them about this story, and there was a Jordanian or a Syrian guy that was there who said his friend was in one of those opposing tanks. And he can tell you why. He said that when they were coming up upon the, the, uh, the Golan Heights there, that there was this great noise like a roaring lion that put great fear into them. He said, we were, we were all filled with fear. That's why they stopped. And you see, I think that's what God was doing. God was thinking, just like he's doing here at Esther, God is behind the scenes, and you may not even know how he's working in your life, but God is still being faithful to his promise to those Jews. And I want you to understand something. 
those Jews, we're not just talking about physical people. We're talking about a covenant that was given to a nation of Israel. And when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, God says this to you. He says that you are grafted in to that covenant, into that tree. And you become part of that promise. And just like God is faithful to the Jew, not because of their faithfulness, because we know they've been very unfaithful, just like you and I many times are very unfaithful, but God will remain faithful because His promises are sure. And so you may have armies coming up, you know, maybe literal armies someday. Maybe it's just a problem in your life, but I want you to understand that God, just as in the book of Esther, He's working regardless of whether you see Him or not. He's there. You may not know, but the enemy knows because there's a great fear that will come over them if they try to attack the Lord's anointed. Haman, we see here in chapter 6, verse 10, is where he says, this is what I want you to do, this whole robe and the horse. This is the same thing that Pharaoh did for Joseph. It's the same thing that when Solomon was made king, King David said, go put him on my mule and take him before down the streets. This was not a small request. Haman was basically saying, I'd kind of like to be king. Kings were coronated this way. You see, I think this is why Jesus, when he rides into Jerusalem, he says this, go get a colt that no one has ever ridden. He wasn't going to take over somebody's kingship. He is the king. And so Haman's request, I, I think that if the king knew that Haman thought that he was going to get to do that, I think the king would have been a little suspicious of Haman. Maybe the king even knew. I wonder if he thinks I'm talking about him. Because I'm sure the king knew that Haman was not a humble man. And that might play a part later on in the fact that the king is you know, pretty quick to say, kill him, and his anger will rise up. In chapter 6, verse 13, he goes home that day. You can imagine how humiliated he is at this point. He says, his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuch arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet that Esther had prepared. You see, I find this fascinating that even his wife and his advisors knew you don't go against the Jew, but yet they were, you know, urging him to go against him. Maybe thinking, you're powerful enough, you can do it. Just like many of these armies. Think about it. I think the Egyptians know this. I think the Syrians know this. You see, Israel is surrounded by enemies, but yet they don't attack because I think they know, even though Israel is this tiny little country the size of New Jersey, they know if you go up against the Jew, we've studied history. It doesn't look good for you. Even his wife and his advisors know because he's a Jew, surely you're in trouble. I mean, if that was my wife, he'd say, well, now you tell me. Thanks a lot. But that's basically what's going on here. So on the night of the 16th, they have their banquet. And of course, we know that Esther says, you know what? 
I'm not going to give you my request tonight. Just here's my request. Come back another night for a banquet. We don't know why. That I think God was planning this. On the second night, it says, So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and as they were drinking wine on that second day, April 17th, the king again asked Queen Esther, What is your petition? As soon as the word left his mouth, they covered Haman's face. As you can see, I skipped a few verses there. He says, What is your petition? He says, This evil Haman wants to wipe us out. Now, at first, by the way, she doesn't say that. She says that there's somebody who wants to wipe us out. She lets the king come to his own conclusion because the king, you can just see the emotion starting to rise. What is your request? Well, somebody wants to kill us. Who is it? I'll kill him. Who is it? Who, who, who's trying to touch you? The emotions are starting to rise. This vile Haman. And as soon as the words left, they cover Haman's mouth. Now, this is kind of neat, verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 75 feet high. 75 feet high has been built. He was going to hang Mordecai on. This Harbona is one of the king's eunuchs that was there with Esther this whole time. Apparently, he's been very fond of Esther. Looks like a good friend because he's the one that brings it up. Hey, I got an idea. (laughs) Kill him on the gallows he had built. You know, I'll tell on him. Well, anyway, Haman falls on the couch, which again, according to Persian law, history tells us they were not allowed, nobody was allowed to be within seven paces of the king or the queen. And as a result, I mean, him falling on the couch has already broken a law. And uh, who knows, maybe he was a little jealous. Maybe, we don't know what all was going on in the king's mind, but perhaps some jealousy was there. You know, he may have been saying, why did the queen invite Haman to this banquet as well as me? Why him? We don't know. But anyway, the plot is exposed, and so Haman is hung on those gallows. Now, when you think of gallows, I don't want you thinking of a noose. We see that these things are actually uh, poles where they would impale you. Okay, And so you would just be impaled on this thing way up in the air so that everybody could see you. Mordecai then is put in place of Haman, given the signet ring, and as a result, they will celebrate Purim, as you'll see here in a moment. But what I want to show you first is that it's very significant that it's April 17th that Haman is killed because there are seven days of deliverance that will take place on this very same day. You know, you read the Scriptures and you think, why did God tell me this time? Why did he t- I don't need to know this. Well, you do need to know this. God is giving you those dates for a reason. I think he's showing, listen, I'm in control of history. It's no accident that that earthquake happened in Japan. It's no accident that we have these big tsunamis coming in. I'm in control to the very day. April 17th is when Haman is hung and the Jews are delivered. Well, check out this. Noah's Ark, it says, lands on Mount Ararat on that very same day, according to Genesis. And the Jews, God's people, are delivered. They cross the Red Sea. If you look in Numbers 33, you just trace the days. We know that they left on Passover. You trace the days. It says they camped here, they camped here, they camped here. And then they cross the Red Sea on April 17th. When they cross the Red Sea, it says they cross it the very day that they entered Egypt, they leave it. So that means that on April 17th, they came into Egypt from the Promised Land to be spared from a famine. God delivered them. We see Joshua was told an angel appears to him and says, this is how you're going to conquer Jericho on April 17th. 
Hezekiah cleanses the temple after they had not been worshiping God for many years. They had evil kings. The good king comes in, he cleanses the temple, and he restores worship when? On April 17th. Jesus died on Passover. Three days later, he rises from the dead and gives the ultimate deliverance on April 17th. Haman became a curse. And in that curse, the Jews were delivered. The Bible says that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. What if there was an innocent man like Jesus who would come and become a curse for you to be that ultimate deliverance? See, I even think there's a foreshadowing there that on this day the deliverance would come because in the future there would be a greater deliverance with a greater sacrifice, a perfect one. Well, here in chapter 9 we see what happens today on Purim. To give you a little background of what they do, it's kind of neat, the symbolisms that they do here. The girls will have beauty pageants to kind of, you know, remember Esther being taken into the queen. They perform plays, and as they perform this play, they'll read the book of Esther. And every time they read the book of Esther, any time the name Haman is coming, they go, ah, ah, and they start yelling and screaming, and everybody does this. They'll put the name Haman on the bottom of their shoes so that by the time they're done with reading the book of Esther, Haman's name is blotted out of their shoes. Because remember, God says, we will blot out the name of the Amalekites. You know what's exciting about that to me? Is the Bible tells us that if we know Jesus, our names will never be blotted out. The Jews also realize that God's name is to be revered and respected. We've talked about that before, how that's why we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, they don't even write the name Yahweh on a chalkboard because you'll erase it. And you'll never blot out the name of God. You don't want to write it on a piece of paper that could be thrown away because we don't want to blot out the name of God. You see, God has a name. The Bible says when in Revelation He comes back that a new name on His thigh that no man knows because there's a name that has never been defiled by the, the, the lips of a human being. Today we hear God's name being taken in vain many times, but there is a name that has not been, and someday we will know that name. They also cook what's called Haman's ears, little pastries that they eat on this time. I'm sure they taste better than that. But it just shows you that that's exactly what Satan has to look forward to. Ultimate, complete destruction. You know, it's kind of interesting to me that Haman is a metaphor of evil, just like Pharaoh, just like Antiochus Epiphanes, just like Adolf Hitler. Did you know Hitler even said this? He says, in 1944, he says, if the Nazis were defeated, the Jewish people could celebrate a second triumphant Purim. Isn't that something? They could celebrate a second Purim if the Nazis are wiped out. When we were in Israel, they had this T-shirt. It says this, Civilizations are nations that, and empires that have tried to destroy the Jewish people at the top. Then it lists the nations, ancient Egypt, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, Greeks, Romans, Byzantines, Crusaders, the Spanish, the Nazi Germany, Soviet Union. What's their status? Gone, gone, gone. Iran? <laughs> Question mark. Yet to be seen. I can tell you what that will say in a few years. The Jews know, as it says on the bottom, the Jewish people, the smallest of nations, but with a friend in the highest of places. So be nice. 
But I want you to understand something. It's not just the Jew. It's you. Because it's not the Jewish people that is our salvation. It's not the Jewish people that's the focus. It's the promise of God, His promise of faithfulness, that you are now a part of. And you see, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints, because you'll be with Him. But those people who take your life, I pity those people because the wrath of God will indeed come upon them. So as the Bible says, they celebrate by giving presents and celebrate God's faithfulness to the Jew. In closing here, guys, I want you to see Numbers 14. It says this, If you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them. Therefore he killed them in the wilderness. Moses here is pleading to God and he's saying, don't wipe out the Jew. Moses was being a Christ figure, saying, blot me out of the book of life. And he says, no, 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 no. I've got a better plan. But Moses says, listen, you can't wipe them out because if you do, then the other nations will hear about this and they'll say God's hand wasn't big enough to save the Jew. Again, I'm going to propose to you that there are many people in our society who are saying the same thing. God isn't big enough to save the Jew. You see, God is going to be faithful to the Jew regardless of their unfaithfulness because it's God's faithfulness that He wants to show you. And for those people who are saying God isn't going to save the Jew today, that He's rejected them, it's too late for them, Ultimately, what you're doing is you're slapping God in the face saying, I don't think God is big enough to save the Jew today. I don't think he's big enough. But you see, I know that God is big enough. I may not know how it's going to happen, but I know it's going to happen. The Bible tells me that in Romans 10. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles comes in. Until means there's going to be an end to it which is why we need to be praying for the Jews. Just like Samuel said, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. We need to pray for the Jew that they would understand and see the Messiah. Because this is a battle that has been going on throughout centuries. You see, Moses was told to wipe out the Amalekites in 1400 B.C. Saul neglected to do that basically 400 years later when he did not kill the Amalekites, Agag. And then we see it brings up to Mordecai. And Mordecai is having that same battle, a symbol of showing Satan fighting against God's people. And you see, Jesus then came to ultimately fight for us, God's people. And we know that that battle is still going on today. But there's a day coming, and Satan's name will be blotted out When we're in heaven, you won't even remember that guy. His name will be blotted out, and we will be celebrating as they celebrate in Purim, God's deliverance. That is ultimately, I believe, the message of Purim.